You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning. On behalf of the U.S. Institute of Peace, I'm delighted to welcome everyone here today. My name is Keith Mines, Director for Latin America at the Institute, and I'll be moderating this extraordinary panel. USIP was founded in 1984 as a nonpartisan, independent national institute dedicated to using tools of analysis, on-the-ground programming, and convening at all levels to seek peaceful resolution of conflict and to help nations and regions coming out of conflict to stay at peace. We have several hundred programs in dozens of countries with field offices in 16, supporting peace builders and initiatives. We're here today for a somewhat unique event. When Rufus the Phillips III passed away in December at the age of 92, many of us lost a good friend who our colleague Max Boot described as a gentle, decent man who served his country with humility and devotion and fearless truth-telling. But we also lost someone who right up to the end of his life had been active in the search for building a more peaceful world. I first met Rufus some 12 years ago when we were both struggling with the question of the architecture for the U.S. to better conduct what were then being called stabilization operations, the quest to strengthen fragile states or bring failed states back to life. We bonded over a shared sense that we could do better at how we were fielding civilians in conflict zones. But I quickly realized that Rufus was not just interested in how to more effectively deploy individuals, but to what end they were being deployed in the first place. And I would see that his extensive experience going all the way back to the 1950s, he was in his 80s at the time I met him, provided a living link to some principles that had been lost along the way and that we were struggling with as we endeavored to strengthen states and build peace. Rufus was born in Middletown, Ohio in 1929, and after graduation from Yale and Virginia Law, entered the military where he served under the legendary Colonel Edward Lansdale in Vietnam in 1955. He uh, served several tours there, of which Richard Holbrook said he was probably the best informed American on events in the country, and perhaps the American most trusted and listened to by the Vietnamese. His approach to the conflict centered on helping to provide the South Vietnamese people with a government that could win popular support by its actions and by its ethos, not just through massive funding projects and military operations. His approach was politely dismissed by those in power. It was a war after all, and wars are won by crushing the enemy. Rufus left Vietnam and pursued a career in business, but returned to what he had learned during the war after 9-11, when he saw another generation of American policymakers struggling to find the right formula for assisting fragile states. He wrote a book about his Vietnam experience in 2007, keyed to Afghanistan and Iraq, Why Vietnam Matters, an eyewitness account of lessons not learned. This book then caused the New Yorker's George Packer to comment in his article, Why Rufus Phillips Matters. The outcome of the Afghan struggle is ultimately going to be determined not by our unilateral actions or geopolitical moves, but by whom the Afghan people wind up supporting, even reluctantly, Vietnam, lesson one, end quote. Rufus worked literally, literally right up to the weeks he passed away on a second book, Stabilizing Fragile States, Why It Matters and What to Do About It, which is, being, is forthcoming from the University of Kansas Press and supported by the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training, ADSD, and DACOR, and is part of their Diplomats and Diplomacy series of books. We will put in the chat a discount code from the publisher for pre-ordering the book for those that are interested. 
I want to recognize also that various of Rufus's family members are here with us today. In addition to leaving a legacy of public service, he and his late wife, Barbara, were blessed with an extraordinary family. Children, Rufus E. Phillips IV, Ann Phillips, Shell, uh, Edward Dean Phillips, and Patricia Phillips, and his late, and, her, and his, sorry, his sister, Lucretia Whitehouse. Uh, I'm joined today by an extraordinary panel, uh, all of whom were influenced by Rufus's work, an example of public service. H.R. McMaster, the Fouad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, former National Security Advisor, author of two books, most recently Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. Max Boot, uh, the Gene J. Kirkpatrick Senior Fellow for National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, noted historian and commentator and author of several books, uh, most recently The Road Not Taken, Edward Lansdale and the American Tragedy in Vietnam. And Roger Meyerson, David L. Uh, Pearson, Distinguished Service Professor of Global Conflict Studies, at the University of Chicago. His publications include two books and in 2007, he was awarded the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences in recognition of his contributions to mechanism design theory. And we're pleased that he has turned his attention to state building where he's now made a, a, another contribution. As a final introductory comment, our discussion today takes place against the backdrop of renewed interest in state fragility with the launch in early April by the Biden administration of the strategy to prevent conflict and promote stability. The next support, uh, step in support to Congress's Global Fragility Act, which USIP and others are actively supporting. So I wanted to start, if I could, with a very brief round of personal reflections from each of our panelists on your Memories of Rufus and your interactions with him. Just a few minutes apiece. Uh, if we could start maybe with Max. Well, thank you very much. It's really an honor to be here with, with such distinguished panelists and uh, discussing uh, one of my favorite people in the world and keeping his memory alive. I mean, Rufus was truly an extraordinary individual. I think one of the kindest and, and gentlest souls I ever knew. Uh, you know, he was in many ways the personification in my mind of the good American kind of running counter to every negative stereotype about Americans you could possibly imagine. Uh, he was somebody who treated people with empathy and respect and, and really believed in the ideals of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence uh, and, and really tried to promote those abroad, but not in a heavy-handed, uh, overbearing, imperialistic kind of way, but in a gentle, loving, friendly and brotherly kind of way. You know, I got to know Rufus uh, around 2010 and, you know, just hearing him talk about his experience in Vietnam and his time with the legendary Ed Lansdale got me interested in, in Lansdale and led to my writing, you know, the, the book that you mentioned, which is a biography of, of Lansdale and, and grappling with his role in the Philippines and in Vietnam in the, in the 50s and 60s. And Rufus was tremendously helpful in all of that. I mean, he spent countless hours with me going over the details of what he had learned. But one of the things that really, uh, there's so many things that I found so extraordinary about Rufus, but among them, as you mentioned, was the fact that he remained engaged uh, in the in the current debate and the current discourse right through, uh, you know, his, his final days on, on this earth. And he was incredibly sprightly, had full of ideas, uh, thinking about what we can do in places like Afghanistan, just as he had once thought about what we can do in places like, uh, like, uh, like Vietnam. And you know, my my conclusion from from getting to spend time with with Rufus and I, you know, and of course his 
his his wonderful wife Barbara, who who sadly predeceased him, was that he was really the embodiment of of what this country can and should be in in world affairs, and that if we had more people like Rufus Phillips, we would probably be uh, in a much stronger position strategically because we would be able to actually exert much more influence in all these countries that we find so frustrating and, and, and problematic uh, because, you know, his approach is very hard to replicate, but it really involves uh, getting to know the local people and, 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 and becoming friends with them and, and gently trying to work with them to bring the resources of the U.S. government to, to bear to help them solve their problems. And that's unfortunately not the way we did things in the 60s, and it's still not the way we do things in most places. But, you know, I, I really think that, that Rufus's life is kind of a model for what we should think about and the kind of virtues we should try to inculcate in our diplomats, uh, intelligence personnel, military officers, and others. Thanks, Max. Excellent. Uh, Roger, do you want to go next? I, I was going to say, I, I'm an economic theorist, so I wasn't... I wouldn't have been on a trajectory to meet Rufus Phillips, except that in, when the United States forces entered Iraq in uh, 2003 and, and our country, um, our president promised uh, to reconstruct Iraq as a sovereign democratic state, not a theoretical, the theoretical question of how do you get organized and, and, and how do you do a mission like that? Uh, democratic state building or stabilization assistance, how, do, how is that done? Uh, it, it, it engages us with questions that are absolutely fundamental in social science, and that's why I got interested in what was, for me, an academic pursuit, but was for Rufus Phillips a lifelong uh, um, advocate. Uh, he, I really only got to know him what at a reception uh, in Washington, D.C., where H.R. McMaster was the speaker. Uh, but two years ago, uh, when he was 90 years old, uh, Rufus Phillips participated in a, uh, a conference on uh, stabilization assistance that I organized. It was a Zoom conference, uh, two days of, of intensive meetings. And when the meetings were, when we were done, people gradually dropped off uh, and I as host stayed on. And the last person to drop off was the, the oldest participant, Rufus Phillips III. And I had, I think, 20 to 30 minutes of just the two of us chatting online, and it was great. Uh, and we corresponded uh, then, and I admired the work that he was doing in the book, the, the, the book that he has finished, which we are celebrating today. Let me say, uh, you know, in, the, in thinking from 2003 until I, you know, met him a couple of years ago, uh, I wasn't influenced by him. I didn't, I didn't really know very much about him. Uh, I was reading other things and other people and uh, studying and thinking, and I was gradually developing uh, a theory of how uh, we would tell the foreign service professionals among us, uh, you know, how, how a theorist would advise to structure a, um, an intervention. What I want to testify to right now about my relationship with Rufus Phillips is when I finally read his Vietnam book, I learned he did it in 1962 exactly the way my theory said. I had come up with this idea that based on, as a pure academic theorist that this was the right way to do it. Uh, and I would say the only difference between what I had been theorizing and what Rufus Phillips' Office of Rural Affairs in 1962 was, is that in my theory, the people at the top policymakers would have known that the head of this network for decentralized political engagement throughout in this case, South Vietnam, the target nation, 
which were trying to support a new political system, they would have known that the the, the head of that of that of that agency was the most important person to uh, guide them on all strategic policy making in regard with regard to the mission. And uh, in fact, uh, as we can talk about later, when Rufus Phillips in fact came home to Washington D.C. not because he was called to testify at the White House, but because his father was ill for family reasons. But he did go because he's from Virginia. He did go to his to, to, to the White House. Uh, he was often told not to speak unless spoken to. And um, uh, and the United States did not. And President Kennedy asked him to speak once. That was good. But his words uh, couldn't prevail against uh, more authoritative speakers in Washington. And, uh, and the United States um, intervention in South Vietnam went in a different direction. And the rest is, is history, isn't it? Roger, thanks. Thanks. Bechar? Thank you and USIP for, for convening us to, to honor Rufus and to, to, to share our reminiscences about, about, about a fine man and someone uh, for, uh, for whom we all had tremendous respect. And I'd like just to, in the beginning, just pick up on, on, a, on a couple of comments by, by, uh, by Max and, and Roger. You know, I think the, the most important word that Max said in that, in that beautiful uh, tribute uh, to, to Rufus was the word empathy. I think that's what Rufus had, empathy, the ability to view complex challenges and opportunities and competitions from the perspective of, of others and then and then Roger um, you know, <laughs> as a theorist I mean I'm reminded of the the old joke that historians often tell about political scientists no offense to any political scientists here is that okay you know political scientists will say to a historian all right okay that works in practice but does it work in theory <laughs> but, but you know rufus was a he, he was he, he he developed his own theory right his own theory of how we can prevail in complex competitions but how we can work together with others to build a better future for generations to come and what he understood is that ultimately these competitions were political. They had social and cultural and other dimensions to these competitions. But ultimately, to build this better world, we had to achieve a political outcome consistent with our mutual interests. In this case, you know, maybe the, the, the United States and, 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 the, and the South Vietnamese people or the United States and the Afghan people or the Iraqi uh, people. And so I, I just I really appreciated Max and, and Roger's comments and reminiscences about about this fine fine person. So you asked Keith when we first met. We met in 2008. I was given one of these kind of crazy missions that I would get as a as a colonel, which was to to develop a, a strategy for the Greater Middle East for the Sencom region. And of course, this is during a period of presidential trans, tra, uh, transition and a period in which many Americans were raising questions about the degree to which we should sustain our efforts in, in both places, in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And, and, and Rufus and I hit it off from the beginning. I mean, 40 years earlier, right, 40 years earlier, he had had an experience, I think, that was quite similar to mine in that, in that uh, in the policies uh, you know, developed in Washington were, were based on fantasy. Right? They weren't based on the reality uh, in places like Vietnam or Afghanistan or, or, or in, in Iraq. And, and, and of course, you know, we, being in the midst of a protracted counterinsurgency wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, we, we had a, a connection with each other. In, in, uh, in, in, and, and, uh, and then he shared with me, you know, the insights that he that he he had in his in his first in his first book, uh, in, in his book on on, v on Vietnam, uh, in, in which you know he, you know, he there were striking similarities 
uh, and how our leaders had misconceived the nature of, of the wars that we had both observed. And and you know what 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 struck me about Rufus immediately is, is are his insights, his his wisdom, but how how all of his insights and his wisdom were tempered by humility and empathy. And you know, he understood the essential elements of success and the degree to which we had agency and could influence a positive outcome. Uh, and, but also he understood the limits of, of our agency and influence. And, and today, I think especially we should all be inspired you know, by, by Rufus, you know, because I'll tell you, after the traumas we've been through, Keith, I think that we have swung from maybe a period of over-optimism in the 90s and early 2000s to, uh, I think, a, a period of pessimism and even resignation. And, and I think what we're left with today oftentimes is we slap, you know, uh, adjectives like institutional and structural in front of every problem we face. Uh, that, that leaves, I think, Americans these days with a toxic combination of, of resignation and, and anger. And what Rufus was, was somebody who could bring people together to have meaningful, respectful discussions about the challenges and opportunities we face, and then also help all of us understand better how we can work together, right? How we can work together to overcome those obstacles, to take advantage of those opportunities and build a better future. So I think maybe today this, this session will be a success if we all resolve uh, to live well, to cherish the freedoms that we enjoy, and, and to be more like Rufus Phillips <laughs> as, as citizens. So thanks again, Keith, for the opportunity to be with all of you. I look forward to the rest of the discussion here. Great. Thanks. Thanks. That's super. Yeah, I, I would just say in, in my experience, the one thing that I can't, that I think was unique immediately about Rufus was not being satisfied with with where things were, with, with believing that we could do better. And I think that was, you know, he got, he dove right into the resignation and the despair that was swirling around in, in the mid uh, 2000s and, and just didn't accept it. He said, there, there, you know, there are answers to these things. We can do better. I was quite inspired by that. And it, you know, it kind of helped me to up my game a bit as well. So let's go into to some of the substance of, of his book and of the, uh, what it was that he, um, he was presenting. So Max, let me start with you. Um, your encounters with Rufus led you to write a book on, as you mentioned, on his mentor, uh, Ed Lansdale. Um, Phillips refers in his first book to what Lansdale described as the X factor, the human political side of the war. Uh, he says the official American view of the war uh, missed the single most influential component, a South Vietnamese political cause worth fighting for. While the enemy, the Viet Cong, framed every action as furthering its political cause against colonialism and feudalism and for unification, we underestimated the motivating uh, power of Vietnamese nationalism. Uh, while this conflict was at its heart a political one, a, a war of ideas and of the spirit. Could you share a little bit about how Rufus and Lansdale intersect, uh, what they believed about strengthening failed and fragile states that was different than the conventional approach? And if you have insights as to why this hasn't been heated, uh, would it have made a difference if it was? Well, the X factor, that was actually, that came from a briefing that Ed Lansdale gave to Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara around 1962, where McNamara, as you know, former CEO of the Ford Motor Company, Harvard Business School, WizKid, et cetera, loved to, uh, to play with numbers. And he was trying to reduce the conflict in Vietnam basically to a matter of arithmetic. And he called in Ed Lansdale, who was one of the foremost Pentagon experts on Vietnam at that point, having basically helped to create the state of South Vietnam from 1954 to 1956 and said to him, you know, Ed, 
I need some help with some factors here. Can you help me, you know, come up with figures for, you know, all these various things? And and Ed Lansdale said to him, well, I can do that, Mr. Secretary, but you need to keep in mind the X factor. And so, you know, McNamara writes down on his graph paper X factor and says, okay, what's what's the what's the equation for that? And Ed, you know, sorely dis- disappoints McNamara by saying there's no way to, com- to compute it. It just, it, it can't be reduced to numbers. It really comes down to the feelings of the population about how they would like to be governed and who they trust to be their leaders. And that's ultimately what will determine success or failure in this war or in other uh, counterinsurgency environments. And, uh, and it really can't be quantified. It just, you have to do it by feel. You have to understand the, the sentiments of the population. And so instead of heeding that wisdom, McNamara decided that Lansdale was an idiot uh, who he was, after all, a, a UCLA dropout, did not have all the wonderful higher education that McNamara had, uh, did not have McNamara's, uh, you, know, arith- uh, you know, mathematical gifts. And so just decided that Lansdale didn't know what the hell he was talking about. And of course, the way that McNamara and Westmoreland and, and the rest of the U.S., military and government ran the Vietnam War was really as a kind of a matter of arithmetic, the notion that if you expend more firepower, if you stack up more dead Viet Cong, you will win. And in fact, uh, you know, Westmoreland and and McNamara were uh, in pursuit of this mythical crossover point where they would be killing the Viet Cong faster then they could be replaced. And Lansdale and and Rufus Phillips both said, you're never going to achieve that because, uh, you know, the question is, do the the Vietnamese communists have the support of the population or not? And, you know, Lansdale and, and, and Phillips both believed it was essential to create a more representative government in South Vietnam that could win the support of, of the people. And they both thought that one of the great tragic mistakes that was made was the Kennedy administration giving the okay to this military coup that overthrew No Dinh Diem and unleashed chaos in South Vietnam. But Lansdale and you know Phillips, both of whom who knew Diem very well and, and realized that he had problems and issues, but also understood that he was one of the few uh, South Vietnamese leaders who was not tainted by corruption or colonialism. And he was the best bet and, and, and a far better bet than all these military men who followed him. Uh, but, you know, they were completely ignored. And so, you know, I think that's that's kind of a mic. I mean, there's a lot more one can say, but I think that's kind of a microcosm of why we we lost the Vietnam War, because we thought that uh, we could defeat a political idea with firepower. And it did not work out that way. And I feel like, you know, we've seen similar experiences in places like Afghanistan, where we tried very hard, uh, but we just did not place enough emphasis, I think, and maybe it was beyond our capability to to do this, but to create a government that could actually win the support of the governed. And so you saw, once you removed U.S. support, the government in Afghanistan collapsed very rapidly. And that's basically what happened in the case of South Vietnam as well, that there was not a self-sustaining government. On the other hand, we see today in Ukraine that the tables are turned and and you know all of our military aid is going for a very good purpose because the people of Ukraine are united 100% behind the Zelensky government and they have a cause that they believe in they are fighting for their freedom for their homes uh, for their independence from Russian domination and so I think you know fundamentally I think what 
what Lance there and, and Phillips would have said is that we, you know, we needed to to work harder in places like uh, uh, Vietnam and Afghanistan to give the people a cause that they could support instead of simply focusing on what we were against. They weren't focusing enough on what we were for. Super. Thanks. Uh, HR, I wanted to, to go through some of the same ground with you and then, and then go a little further into uh, two other aspects. One is the U.S. policymaking process and how, you know, why is this so, why is it so hard to get the good ideas where they need to be and, and support it? And even maybe a little reflection without being partisan on, on the, because it's really not a partisan issue, on the domestic politics of some of this. But I noticed that, I mean, in your book, you were onto this, I think even before you met Rufus, if I'm thinking about the publication of your book, because your first book on Vietnam, you said uh, on the tragedy of decision-making Vietnam, you said McNamara viewed the war as another business management problem, exactly what Max just shared, that would ultimately succumb to his reason, judgment, and others' rational calculations. He and his associates thought they could predict with great precision what amount of force applied to Vietnam could achieve the results they desired, and they believed they could control that force with great precision from halfway around the world. They forged ahead oblivious of the human and psychological complexities of the war. So you reach fundamentally the same conclusion, again, I think independent of each other. But as you, as you channel that, and I was glad Max mentioned Ukraine, because it is interesting that, you know, eight months ago, we say we're, we're never doing nation building again. And then here we are in the middle of, of, a, of a, effectively a nation that, that was built up at least to the point where it can stand up against uh, not only our greatest adversary, but, but the greatest adversary of, of freedom uh, in, in the world today, stand up and, and on behalf of, frankly, all of us. So really quite an interesting um, distinction between the, the, the catastrophe of Afghanistan in the summer and now um, standing up, uh, Ukraine standing standing fast in the spring. But any comments on, um, again, a little if, if you have some thoughts about how this is, you've worked the policy uh, process at every level, uh, literally. So um, how do you see this in terms of the policy and how decisions are made? Is it is it at the whims of who happens to be there? How does how is this done better? Hey, thanks, Keith. You know, I, I think both political parties, leadership from both political parties across multiple administrations have have uh, displayed an extraordinary degree of strategic incompetence. And it's 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 incompetence that I think can only be corrected through, again, Rufus Phillips's empathy, his ability to view these complex challenges and war uh, through the perspective of others, including uh, enemies and adversaries and, 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 and rivals. And this is what Rufus understood, whereas many Americans like Robert McNamara uh, thought mainly about change, change in the character of warfare or change that he could impose right, with his new management techniques and, and, and the integration of new technologies. What Rufus understood, I think, were, were continuities in the nature of war. You know, the historian Carl Becker uh, observed that, you know, that memory of past and anticipation of future should walk hand in hand in a happy way. And what Rufus could do is balance this sense of continuity and change. And he was particularly sensitive to the political dimension of war, right? And, and, and which is a continuity in the nature of war, uh, as well as war's human dimension, as well as war's uncertainty because of the interaction uh, between, uh, be, between opposites, right? The opposite sides in, in, in war. And then, of course, war is a contest of wills, and I, I think that that Rufus's approach in in the in his in his excellent uh, book that that he published or that that he that he delivered uh, uh, pri prior to to his death, uh, fixing fragile states matters. 
his analysis is very is very consistent with what Thucydides said about war 20, 2,500 years ago, that, 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 that what drives conflict, what drives war is a combination of fear, uh, honor, and, and interest. And, and, um, and Rufus's ex experience, his research and his analysis uh, led him to the conclusion that, uh, that ultimately all efforts in war have to be oriented on, on achieving that political outcome. But his message in the book is critical, right, as, as it should be in connection with Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, and so forth. Uh, but, but it's also hopeful because what he shows in his analysis and the, the Columbia example, other examples, is that the United States can be effective in, in strengthening the political outcomes, overcoming challenges to security if they're partnered uh, with with a government that that uh, uh, whose interests are aligned with ours, but but mainly has legitimacy with its own people uh, and security forces, as Max alluded to, you know, who are who are motivated, right, again by fear, honor, and interest uh, to to fight a, a against an insurgency and and uh, or those who are undermining security. So. Um, you know, I, I think that that what what you're getting to, Keith, is 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 really the the main cause of of our strategic incompetence. Um, you know, I describe in in, in this in, in this last book as strategic narcissism, the tendency to define the world only in relation to us, and assume that what we do, right, what we're decided to do or not do, is decisive toward achieving a favorable outcome. Rufus understood, hey, the others have agency. Others have authorship over the future, including our partners, those who we're working with, uh, but, but also our enemies, adversaries, and rivals. Super. Thanks. Thanks. And in the U.S. bureaucracy, I mean, where, do, where, does, where would change reside? I mean, if, if, you, if yeah. you could... Well, I think, it's in, I think it's in the bureaucracy, it's in universities, it's in institutions like yours. I mean, fundamentally, I think this is an issue of, of education. I mean, who studies military and diplomatic uh, history anymore. I mean, not very many people. Uh, many of our, our students as undergraduates and, and even at graduates uh, are subjected to what I would call the curriculum of self-loathing in our universities, <laughs> in which we teach our young people that all of the problems of the world prior to 1945 were due to colonialism, all of the problems of the world after 1945 were due to capitalist imperialism. And this, this, this combination of of, uh, of of a new left interpretation of history, as well as various you know, critical theories and postmodernist theories, I think are robbing us of our ability to think in time, to understand the complex causality of events, uh, to trace uh, the outcomes back back to their to their causes, to reason by historical analogy. Th these are these are all competencies that that are that are in in, um, in 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 really short supply these days. So it's an educational problem. But within the U.S. government, I think it has to begin with a national security policymaking and decision making process that corrects many of the deficiencies that we've seen uh, between <laughs> between uh, Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, and Vietnam. And that's not taking enough time to think about the nature of the challenge we're facing, to, to apply designed thinking, to, to frame these challenges to our security in a way that can foster common understanding. And then I would think, and you alluded to this earlier, Keith, and uh, is, that, is to try to insulate uh, the, the decision-making process from partisan political considerations. Now, those who are going to be partisan, they're, they're going to have a say in the process, but the process should not be constrained in terms of the development of options and the analysis uh, by, by partisan political uh, uh, considerations. I think the third uh, critical aspect of restoring strategic competence is to always provide 
multiple options to the uh, to, to the president, right? The person who was elected. And it's in the comparison of those courses of action, those options that you can draw out uh, the, 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 the relative costs and, and consequences and, and take into consideration longer term, uh, longer term considerations. Uh, and, and so I, I think these are the important aspects of this. I think there has to be an effective national security decision making policy making process that that uh, that does this for a particular for a president. Uh, but but it all begins, I think, with with what the historian Zachary Short, according to this term, and I've been using it and borrowing it from him, is strategic empathy, uh, a, a quality that that uh, that Rufus Phillips cert certainly had. Uh, and it's, it's, I think, a key source of, of his wisdom. Tremendous. Thanks. Thanks. Roger, I wanted to turn now to uh, um, the, the same themes, but in a, in a kind of a different direction. I know Rufus and you shared a, a, a rare focus on the local issues and state stabilization. And like him, you've written extensively about the need to get development and political officers out into the field to help build support for a new political arrangement from the ground up. Um, and we'll put a couple of your papers in the chat so people can, uh, okay. can pick those up. Um, you wrote in a recent paper about decentralized political engagement that studying Rufus's approach, you said, we can learn how to avoid the common problem of foreign support promoting excessive centralization in the recipient government, which has been an issue in many stabilization assistance missions. Foreign interveners have often forgotten that autonomous local governments play an important role in, in most uh, successful democratic states. One of the, the things about Rufus's book that I would just highlight is the um, this the whole second half of the book is about how to structure the U.S. government such that it is more capable of of, of doing things in in these what he calls competitive environments, but the local level. And so he's quite seized with the fact that we can't just work at the the capital and and call it a day. That we need to be not only conscious of what's going on um, further afield, but also have our people active there. So, uh, Roger, I just want to give you a few minutes. Uh, Please to, to talk I, uh, a little bit about where your work and Rufus's intersect. I, I, where I, as I say, I, I emphasize that I, that I, that I I met Rufus Phillips only a few years ago because my thinking evolved independently of his, and and I say that to confirm that that he had it right, and I I think I think maybe maybe I can say I have it right because I agree with Rufus. Uh, I think in his his book, uh, the the new book, um, stabilizing fragile states, that that. He is emphatic that we do need a, a a a standby capability for these kinds of mission, whether it's whether it's United States government capability or maybe some alliance like a NATO capability or uh, some other international international organization or not, or an ally who provides the capability. But a capability is needed. We've seen again and again that uh, the United States has invested. In, the, in military capabilities to prevail on any battlefield. And repeatedly in, 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 in living memory, we've seen those military victories seem to be, go wasted, to be fruitless because of a failure to do the political follow through. And investing in the capability to do the political follow through is something that's, is, that Rufus recognized. And that's what this, this new book is about. Uh, he, he lays out a way of doing it uh, he wants to see it, uh, but look, let me back up and say the decentralization because a mm -hmm. couple of things that have been, been said already. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it, HR's point about uh, first of all, em empathy. Everybody, I can give you quotes going back a hundred years that emphasize absolutely the kind of people we want to go be our 
local stabilization officers to do the work of post-conflict political reconstruction in the field. The field officers need empathy first and foremost. That's the kind of people you want. But as I say, the, the return of, of Rufus Phillips from Vietnam to the United States in, in the summer of 1963 is just evidence that somebody with a serious, a serious standby, standby regular organization that has a recognized importance in the United States government organization is absolutely needed uh, if the message is going to be remembered and the the, the the advocate for the political focus, the decentralized political focus is is has to be there with a recognized bureaucratic position or else it's going to be the same thing again and again. Uh, uh, what what uh, the phrase strategic narcissism uh, was used, and I, I like that, but I want to suggest, you know, Americans are people too. And to me, I, I really, let me, the most important argument I could make might be a lot of people say, you know, our, our, our state building missions have gone wrong because we Americans thought that we overestimated how much people around the world were like us in valuing democracy. I don't think that's, I think actually democracy is a pretty good sell almost anywhere. And I think the evidence proves it. Uh, but I think the real mistake is we were, un, we, we, we failed repeatedly because we underestimated how much people in other countries are like Americans in valuing their local politics, in caring about the, uh, the that some part of, of, of their local government should be handled by people who are locally accountable and not just appointed out of the national capital by the, by the national heads of state, even if they were elected with lots of votes. We don't want them appointing uh, the people who, who run our local police uh, department and our, and our local schools in America. And people have similar feelings uh, in other countries. They, local politics matters to everyone. It especially matters to, um, to people who are in failed or fragile states where, where they haven't been able to rely on, on, on a national government for protection and for essential public services. Uh, local, local leader, trusted local leadership matters. And, uh, and, and, and a political intervention, when the goal is political change, if, we're not, if our policy is not being driven by a deep engagement with the local political concerns that we have, but only by consultation with with national would be national leaders in the capital, uh, we're going to miss what the real issue is, uh, and we'll it'll look like we're trying to set up a centralized uh, political machine that could could oppress the, the the people who are trusted. Let me just say one other statement because Max talked about the X factor, and and, I, and the truth is, as I say, I, I admit I'm a quantitative theorist, so uh, I never obviously I never knew uh, Robert McNamara, but I uh, but 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 I feel akin to him, and 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 I've you know I've read those converse, the reports of those conversations that Rufus Phillips and and Edward Lansdale had with McNamara, and McNamara was wrong. Rufus Phillips and 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 uh, and, and Edward Lansdale were absolutely right about the, the X factor, but, but I, I do want to quantify it. And and I would suggest more than anything else that that extra caring, a willingness to sacrifice oneself to take real personal risks and to to, to do military to do service in defense of the state is something that is more is significantly easier to motivate if you think that service to the state can give you prestige with your in your neighborhood in your community and that doesn't happen unless 
the community leaders, people, the, the, the leaders of the, who, are, who people trust in the communities where, where we live, have some stake in the state or feel connected to the state. Uh, when the state is, is is coming out of the capital and, and has nothing to do with 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 with, with village leadership, then then there's no incentive to 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 take risk for the state. It's not going to it's not associated with honor in your community, uh, with prestige in your community. And let me just say one on Ukraine. I want, simply want to remind people, as many may not know, that after uh, since since 2014, since when when since Russia started nibbling at the eastern and, and southern parts of, of Ukraine. Uh, the, the Ukrainian government in Kiev got serious about local decentralization reforms that they had not been, they'd been kicking down the road. And you'll hear in, in reports of local mayors regularly, when you hear about the battlefield front, they'll be quoting the local mayor. Many of those mayors didn't exist. There was a major promata or community reform uh, in the, that took a, that was over the last seven years. And there's real evidence that, that much of, of, of Ukrainian, there are many reasons why Ukrainians don't want to be ruled from the Kremlin from history. And uh, you, you, can, you can see that. But, but one of them has to do with the fact that the Ukrainian state has reached out in the last seven years in a way that they weren't before. And that has, I think, been a significant factor. And but let me stop. Thanks, Roger. Excellent. I, let me just, wait, I, I, should, I should simply close on that, that there is no better model that the only thing I would add to, the, to, to, to Rufus Phillips's plea for the United States government to get serious about institutionalizing um, uh, uh, a capability for post-conflict political reconstruction, along with our other military capabilities, capabilities we hope to maybe never use again, but, 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 but need to have if necessary. The one thing I would add is the doctrine should say, there is no better model of how it should be organized than the way Rufus Phillips organized the Office of Rural Affairs in 1962. Decentralizing authority over American assistance to provincial officers with some regional coordinators and, 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 and a director of the, in, the, in the national capital who's also talking to, to, to national leaders. Then you have an organization which is functioning in the provinces, is trying to support his, his organization was, 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 its fundamental mission was developing uh, these democratically elected village village councils and village mayors and hamlet uh, councils that, that that's what they, they were they're promoting local government and promoting a devolution of power by the state to those local governments and now you have a group which of, of US officers in the field who are in the real who are, who are engaged with the political problems of every part of the country and they should be given the resources and they should be consulted on the strategic decisions of the mission. And, and, and there's nothing, that, no better model than the Office of Rural Affairs in 1962. Thanks, Roger. Well, we're astoundingly right on time. Um, we have about 15 minutes for uh, q and I'm getting some questions already, so I just let you know the, the question chat thing is open if you'd like to put a question in there. We've kind of stacked the deck here. We're all kind of pro Rufus Phillips, so if there's critics out there, we're, we're happy to consider something we might be getting wrong here. Um, let me start with one that came in. Um, this is actually from Rufus's brother-in-law, Sven Kramer. He said, uh, Rufus Phillips often said that the advice and assistance work he proposed for the U.S. was not to be a subset of military policy, but a neglected yet vital, politically, culturally sensitive part of an overall U.S. security foreign policy strategy. And the point being that, that, that military can't just be the only, it can't be the dominant factor, that, that, that the, the overall strategy has to include this 
this other key component. In that larger historical context, he was very much aware that major ideological challenges like jihadism, communism, et cetera, exploited vulnerabilities and intensified internal security and stabilization challenges. His policy focus was not on toppling a regime or demanding immediate democracy, the kind of overreach that ended with abandonment in Vietnam or Afghanistan, but building on it, on a, uh, and if building on it uh, effectively and in partnership over, over time. So he asked, where could his approach best be applied in the world today among the vulnerable nations of Latin America, Africa, or the Middle East, or where is it most lacking? And uh, another question came in that's in the same, same vein. Let me just repeat this so we've got this together from Muhammad Mansur Musa. He just said, how can the legacy of Rufus Phillips be implemented in modern day conflict management? So let me, if I could just use one example that he, that Rufus uses, and that was, uh, and it goes to another question about the, the mix between military and civilian instruments of, of power, but it was, he, he, he was quite um, seized with the mission of, um, of Ambassador um, Bullington in, in Casa, the Casamance region in, in West Africa, where he, he is with a small team of diplomats, um, just using a few modest tools, was able to negotiate a, a, a peaceful solution to a, a, a longstanding conflict. So again, in Rufus's mind, as, as Max points out, and in his uh, earlier book, actually, it's not all about um, just the, the heavy hand of the military. It's often about um, um, the, the softer side used more effectively. But let me just throw that that out. Um, Max or HR, anyone? Uh, where in the world would this be? Uh, would this be ripe for um, for for application? Hey, well, Max, I'll just I'll make it a short comment up front, and and you know, I, and Max writes about this in in, in his books as well, on, on and and his book on on insurgencies. Mm -hmm. You know, I, it, the key, a, a critical test of strategic competence is whether you can integrate all elements of national power and efforts of like-minded partners, oriented on a well-defined and commonly understood political objective. And we've we have demonstrated our inability to do that. In fact, you know. How about just meeting the lower standard of making sure that what you're doing militarily doesn't cut against what you're trying to achieve politically and diplomatically? Think about what we did in Afghanistan, where we handed the Taliban, here's the schedule for our, our withdrawal. And now we'd like to negotiate an outcome favorable to us after we told you that we're leaving on this timeline. How about you know, as you're as you're trying to, to negotiate a, a political outcome with your enemy, you no longer target that enemy or even acknowledge that 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 your enemy, and instead, what you do is you invite your enemy to stay in five star hotels and travel the world fundraising. And I mean, it's just it, it is an astounding degree of incompetence, uh, you know, based on the standard of uh, Keith. What you're saying is what you're doing militarily. We're trying to achieve politically. What you're doing economically. What you're doing from you know from a, a decentralized approach to uh, to development and and reestablishing you know g governance and 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 um, and economic t activity. I mean, they, they should all be integrated, and we've demonstrated, I think, our inability to do so. Thanks. Let me just Max? pick up on. Let me just pick up on a point that uh, Sven Kramer made. Who, in addition to being Rufus's brother-in-law, Sven was also a worked on the NSC in the 1980s under the Reagan administration. Um, and I, you know, he alluded in his question to, you know, uh, if I if I understand it correctly, to, you know, really developing governments that can win uh, popular legitimacy as opposed to governments that necessarily 
uh, win elections. Uh, maybe that's a little bit more my own spin than his question, but that's that's I guess that's the prerogative of the of the person answering the question. I'll take it in the direction I want to take it, and I think that is that is a that is a valid point because I think you know there's a tendency in to the extent that U.S. policymakers recognize that legitimacy is a problem in 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 in, in countries where we're trying to provide security assistance. Legitimacy usually translates into holding elections. And I think what Rufus understood is that there was a lot more legitimacy than winning a popular vote. And I think we saw, you know, the problems with that in Iraq, for example, where they kept holding election after election, but the resulting governments were not all that legitimate anyway, even though they ostensibly won an election because there was massive corruption and the actual government formation was was done in backroom deals. It wasn't didn't necessarily reflect uh, the will of the people. And then fundamentally, the government was not able to govern. It was not able to provide basic services. It was not able to stamp out massive corruption. I mean, this is, I think, essentially what uh, what hindered our, our, our military efforts so greatly in both Afghanistan and Iraq. And, you know, I think what Rufus understood was that the government had to be relatively effective. You had to limit corruption. You had to, to the point that Roger made, it had to be in tune with local desires. They couldn't just be imposing top-down solutions from Baghdad or Kabul on local provinces. It actually had to have local leaders who represented the local people. And I think, you know, this is all a reflection of what Rufus saw in, in Vietnam, where you had the exact same problem where, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, Lance Dale and Rufus Phillips, they both, although they were supporters of No Din Siem, they were also critical of Siem who, for centralizing too much power in Saigon and not pushing enough power out to the provinces and and for trying to run a, a quasi-authoritarian state. But they were also able to make these, these fine judgments where they understood that, you know, imperfect as Siem was, he was still going to be more legitimate and more effective than these military rulers who came after him, who replaced all of the, I mean, one of the tragic things that happened after ZM's death was, wasn't just the removal of the senior leadership in Saigon, it was the removal of all the provincial governors, all the district governors, so the entire leadership. I mean, you know, imagine what happens in the United States if you change not only the U.S. administration, but you get rid of every governor, every mayor, and every town around the country. I mean, imagine what kind of chaos would result from that. And that's exactly what happened in Vietnam, making it essentially ungovernable. And so throughout the 60s, uh, as this tragedy continued, uh, Rufus and Ed Lansdale both tried to make the case, hey, we have to build up a, a government that has the support of the people in Vietnam. And Basically, the Johnson administration, the Nixon administration couldn't care less. Their view was, we'll deal with uh, Win Van Tu, who, who emerged as the military dictator of, of South Vietnam. And we don't really care if he has legitimacy because he has firepower. He has troops. Uh, he can he can put, you know, uh, warheads on foreheads. And that's really all that we care about. Uh, and, you know, I think what Lansdale and, and Phillips realized was that that was creating a hollow state that would collapse very quickly if we did not have massive American military support. And that's exactly, I think, what we've seen in more recently in, in Afghanistan and to some extent, less extent, in, in Iraq. And that's why, you know, I think Rufus's book, his, his first book was called Lessons Not Learned. And, and I think, you know, we're seeing the tragedy of, of not learning those lessons over time. 
Super, thanks. Roger? Yeah, I've, the question talked about you know, po problems, political and economic problems all over the world. I, I, I want to separate that from, from the question of Rufus was, Phillips was asking us, telling, telling us that in his, this is final legacy, that the United States needs to get ready for the next time this mission happens. Hopefully it doesn't happen soon. Hopefully it maybe it never happened. Hopefully we never use our military forces either, but we, we, need, we know we need to, them to be ready in, in, uh, as a deterrent and in the, in the, in the case, when, because when they are needed, you have to have them. Um, the political, I, I've argued that when the goal of, a, of, of an intervention is to promote political change, then the interveners need to be engaged with local political concerns throughout the country. That's not necessarily true in normal assistance. That when I, would, I, I don't want to suggest that state building capabilities of the United States of America need to be turned on countries all over the world. The normal in, international, the norm in international relations is that nations respect each other's political autonomy. You don't get involved in subnational politics and you don't try to, you, you, you work with, with the national leaders uh, in, in in any any relations with their country, uh, because they are the, the the elected or chose politically chosen national leaders of, of each country uh, have, have a sovereignty that needs to be respected by foreigners. It's only when we need to promote international uh, political change that, that it's necessary for the for, for the United States to get involved. And when we do, our in, our interlocutors at the national level are not going to say, "Gee, we want." We, we, will, we want to be forced to share power with, with local community leaders in the provinces and in, in, in the villages. No, they like centralizing power, the, the, the president of the country to the, typically. And then we, it's then that we need to reach down a, lo, a, a, a lower level. Otherwise, our intervention itself is, set, is tending to centralize uh, uh, political power in, in, the, in the host country and making it more fragile. Um, we know, you know, even the United States, a, a democratic presidential election doesn't necessarily yield a leader who is overwhelmingly trusted in every part of the country. Our system works because we also have serious autonomous subnational governments at the state and local level. And if, if there are large regions where each of the, the last several presidents has been largely distrusted by a large you know, bulk of the population, uh, those people at least had municipal and state executives that they trusted. And, and, and exactly the same dynamic has played out again and again as we intervened following the normal international, appropriately international relations of whatever we do in your country, we're only going to do it according to the direction and regulation of the national government. That principle can't work once we are, its, are, are involved in making the government itself, in supporting the, the very existence of the government. Then we have to have different rules. What we need is a capability that's ready for that transition to a different kind of decentralized political engagement when it's necessary, but hopefully it will be rarely necessary. We, we don't want to be doing that all over South America, Africa, Asia. Uh, no, but we want to be ready to do it when we need to. Thanks, Roger. Uh, we have a hard stop in just a few minutes. So I, I think we're actually not going to have time to go through the next round of questions, but I just wanted to comment on some of them. So we have, let me start at the bottom. Johannes uh, Allenfeld said, uh, why describe, despite subscribing to the gospel of local ownership with the Afghan compact, we kept micromanaging, developing 
development and NATO allies running their own departmental show. I, I would just comment on that because I was in a PRT in 2012 to 13, and it goes to a number of the comments that have been made about the, the question between the center and the, the provinces. It was a very tricky issue through everything we've done. I will say there's a number of very good people in the U.S. government and the Bureau of Conflict uh, Stabilization Operations that have been working on this and that have been actually deploying people out to the field in different places where we, we I think we have gotten it right at different times, but it's something that that is a, a very, um, it's a consistent issue that's hard to get right, but it's one that I'm glad we identified. Rufus was all over it. It's something that we have to keep revisiting, finding the right model, applying it. Every case is gonna be a little bit different. Uh, James Bullington, I mentioned him earlier. I didn't realize he was on the call. Good to see you and I wish we could actually hear from you, but we're not set, set up for that. But <clears throat> he says, thanks for the, thanks to the belated implementation of much of the Lansdale Phillips model. Um, South Vietnam, the South Vietnam essentially won the insurgency, which is historically accurate, of course. Um, don't we need to install both political and military strength? So very good point that in the midst of the X factor and all the things we've been discussing, there is still a, a core security issue that has to be dealt with and, and create creatively and, and, um, and, uh, and done with military force. And McDonald, uh, God bless Rufus and his phenomenal legacy, wanted to get the perspective of the panel on what are the biggest hindrances the U.S. government organizing a more strategically empathetic stabilization policy. I think we'll have to table that, but that's a great question, I think, for all of us to consider, to think about, and particularly those in government, to think about how to infuse that. I think H.R. Uh, had it right earlier, where he just implored us all to, to take those, those principles, and Max as well, take the principles that Rufus lived so well. So I guess my answer to that would be, all of us should, should read Rufus's book, uh, look at his legacy, and then see how we can best best apply it. And then Colfax Phillips, um, how can Rufus Phillips strategies be applied in communities of fragile states where local authorities may have weak institutions, lack uh, needed capacity skills, and may be corrupt? To which I would, I think, just uh, offer that. It, again, it's a, it's a long game, and I think that was the other thing Rufus recognized, one of patience, um, uh, local solutions and, 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 and just really being ready to flex, uh, with the, the new days, uh, the new days challenges, but very good questions. And, um, I'm afraid we're going to have to, to table those for next time. Um, thanks everyone for joining us. Uh, it's been terrific to have the, the three of you to, to, uh, to celebrate Rufus's uh, legacy and and to try to, to to get some of these principles out for a wider audience and uh, appreciate all of you that have joined us and uh, we hope to continue the discussion uh, in the future. Thanks you very much. Keith, thanks everybody. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thanks for hosting it. Max, thanks Roger. Take care you guys. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.